I don't know. I think you just have to try and run an ethical game as much as you can and run it with transparency and sure shit's going to go wrong sometimes and you just got to expect it and you got to roll with it. There's no easy way around. No easy answer, I suppose. I suppose. Hey everyone, welcome to the Founder Hour. This is your co-host, Posh. For episode 29, we hung out with Greer Gavorko, founder of Coaqua, a premium coconut water beverage. Greer grew up in New Zealand for most of his childhood. From a very young age, he was super adventurous and had a passion for music. He wiggled his way into the music scene and eventually became the production designer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and moved to LA in the early 90s. After 16 years touring with the Red Hot Chili Peppers as they rose to fame, Greer left the gig and ventured off on his own, writing a book about his journey on the road with the Chili Peppers and working on a bunch of side projects until eventually coming up with the idea of Coaqua while living in Thailand. Tune in to hear his founder journey full of adventures, failure, and opportunity. Hey everyone, Pat and Posh here for the Founder Hour podcast. We're here today with Greer Gavorko. Greer, we're excited to be with you and discuss, you know, your journey and you know, your founder, your founder journey specifically and where you are at today. Right on. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's kick it off with, tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Mm, so I'm originally from New Zealand. I don't know if you guys know that, but yeah. that's where I hail from. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of the North Island a farming community. My father was a uh, dairy farmer. My mother was a clothing designer. Um, so I guess I had a, <clears throat> a rural upbringing, BMX, bike riding, motocross riding, hut building, camping, fishing, you know, the sorts of things you do in rural communities. And that's kind of where I got my wanderlust from, for whatever reason. And how long were you in New Zealand for? Mm, I left, well, I would constantly leave. I mean, from a young age, I seemed to have a, um, a need to get out of wherever I happened to be. So... At 16, I went to Kathmandu. I went to Nepal for two months or seven weeks or something like that, um, which was an odd thing to do because I was in school, obviously, and I I hustled my mother to borrow some money, and she was like, for what? I said, like, I want to go to Nepal, and she's like, why? And uh, and I just felt I had no particular reason why I wanted to go to Nepal. I just felt like it was a place that I should go to, so I did. Um, I bought a bunch of jewelry in those days. This was like 1986 or something. Um, so there was a bunch of ethnic jewelry in those days that people hadn't really got, like mm -hmm. not so much like these days. So I bought a pile of that and hustled it when I got back to New Zealand. And, and um, that's, yeah, so that's, I kind of started. Sound, sounds like you were very adventurous. Um, what, like, tell us about, was there like one moment throughout your childhood that you remember like just, you know, just being far more adventurous than others? No, I don't think I can isolate a specific moment. It just seemed to always be there. I don't know what it was. I mean, you know, I would leave leave the family house and disappear for weekends at a time and go and hang out in the city when I was 13 and stay with friends or relatives. I just always did. I don't know where it came from, but it was always there. At what point do you decide to leave New Zealand and perhaps really go venture out on your own? Uh, so I left the first time. and Well, so I didn't come. Uh, what you're asking, I guess, is when did I not go back? Sure. Right? So I left and didn't go back. I think I left. I moved to Sydney in Australia when I was 18. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was working in music, so I was sort of hustling my way into 
working in rock and roll. So that's where I started, and I did that for not that long, six months, and then I moved to London when I was 19 and a half, I think. Um, and from London, I you know I spent a couple of years in London, and I did a lot of music stuff there with Motorhead, The Pogues, White Snake, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, a whole bunch of stuff as as sort of like a young technician, I guess. Um, and then I moved to LA in '92, I think it was. Uh, where where does your passion for music come from? I mean, where's that? Like, obviously, with so many interests as a kid, like, was that one of was that the largest interest? And did it, does it stem from anything in particular? I think it probably was, and I don't think it stems from anything in particular. Or at least I wouldn't be able to identify it. But, um, just you know, I guess as a, I mean, most kids, teenagers are interested in music one way or another, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if I was any more obsessed than anybody else, but um, like punk rock seemed to be the thing that motivated me made motivated the way I thought thought there was some synchronicity between what the clash and the sex pistols and those kinds of guys were doing and um I was enamored with it and so music was what I wanted to get into but not as a musician I just wanted to be part of the Mm -hmm. the the ensemble Mm -hmm. but why I have no idea you said that you left around 18 years old did you have any sort of formal education at the time did you have any idea of what you wanted to do with your life uh, no formal education whatsoever. I left school the day I turned 15. Um, and at that point, all I wanted to do was be on the road. I just wanted to be moving and checking stuff out. Um, yeah, nothing. That was it. That was the motivation. Music seemed to be a method whereby I could spend most of my time traveling and be around people that I wanted to be around. And that those types of people were those that were in the music industry? Yeah, well, yeah, just rock and roll, punk rock music. That was it. There wasn't any greater aspiration than that in those days. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, you're, you're a technician. Can you can you specify kind of like what, what kind of things you're doing for, for these Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, when you start, you don't know anything, right? So you, <laughs> you're basically just hanging out, bugging people like, hey, can I can I help with this? Can I help with kind that? Kind of like a sponge just absorbing like everything right. that's going and then, on. Yeah. And for whatever reason, people were receptive to that. Um, maybe more so than they are these days. I'm not sure. But anyway, so a couple of older guys were like, you know, come on board. We can, you know, wangle your way into this or hustle your way into that. Um, and so I started off being a sound technician versus a sound engineer. So a sound technician is somebody that's really helping out, mm. helping the sound people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an exciting thing because it was it was it was cool to get into a giant room, an auditorium, or an arena, or whatever, and be in control of that big old sound system starting to blast shit out. So I was enamored with that. Um, and I kind of worked my way up through that. There was some pivotal moments. I did a Pink Floyd show in New Zealand um, on the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour, and I was working with the set designer. Just, I just happened to team up with him, and I was like, whoa, this shit's amazing. I mean, how do you do this? How do you get into this? Um, and I eventually did get into that. I en- ended up um, being the production designer for the Chili Peppers uh, as of like 2000, I think. Um, so it was really, I think all all the way through the journey was like, hmm, let me try and do this. Let me see how you can do that. Who do I got to, who am I going to hassle to figure out how to do this and wangle my way into that? What did your parents think about this, you know, interesting quest that, you know, Greer was going on at the time? <laughs> I, I, honestly, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think we, I didn't come from a, a family of like... In a traditional sense, everybody had an expectation whereby you should go and do this or do that or be a doctor or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. it was pretty free and easy. So um, I think it was fine. I mean, I've never heard anything to the contrary. 
you are now in the music industry. Um, at what point do you move to LA? 92. So I did a Red Hot Chili Peppers tour in Europe on the back of an album called Mother's Milk. Um, and we became friends, Flea and I and Anthony and I, Chad and I became friends. Flea said, why don't you move to L.A.? I was like, well, Flea loves L.A. I moved to L.A. Mr. L.A. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was just a very much an organic thing. I didn't plan for it. Uh, London was fine. I wasn't unhappy in London, but it just seemed like a new opportunity, so why not? So this was while you were working yeah. with Red Hot mm-hmm. Chili Peppers. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that time in your life? Like, uh, how long were you working with them? And um, what are some of the most profound memories? Mm, and, so and what exactly? Because I know you were the creative director, right? You were I, also production I started off as, as, a, production as a sound designer. engineer, and mm-hmm. then I became a production manager, and then I became the production designer. Um, but I worked with them for like 16 years, I think, pretty oh. much. It's a long time. Yeah. Um during their like peak years. Yeah, so it really happened off the back of that first tour. Mother's Milk, I think, was 89, maybe 90. I'm not entirely sure now. But anyway, around about then. Um, then we went back and we did the, what's the Blood Sugar Sex Magic album, which was really where they started to blow up. And that was exciting because it was just, it, that time was, they were getting bigger and bigger. So it was as we were on the road, venues were changing. It was going from 5,000 to 15,000 seaters and more and more people getting involved. And it was also that the same time that all of that wave of Seattle stuff started to hit, the Nirvanas, the Sound Gardens, the Pearl Jams. Mm-hmm. So in, in music, it was really an exciting period of time. I don't know how long it lasts, maybe five years, six years, whatever it was. But um, So it was all exciting. I mean, we did a lot of stuff with a lot of those people and um, all over the world, and it was a lot of fun. And... Obviously, as the band got bigger and uh, more success, the budgets grew, and that's when I kind of moved into the production design thing and had finally now a budget to be able to do some cool shit. Did, did you feel like this was work or it was something that you really loved to do? I don't think I ever really thought of it as work. I mean, it was work, obviously, because it is work. I mean, you're working 14 hours a day. You're on yeah. the road for six months, eight months, a year, whatever it was. But it... it I don't know. I couldn't equate it to anything else because I never did anything else. You know what I mean? I couldn't say, hey, it's way better than what it, you know, building a house, for example. I don't know, whatever, plumbing, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but it was certainly a lot more fun, I would imagine, than any of those other sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I, th- I feel like if, I, if anyone wants to think like, oh, how do I become a set designer mm-hmm. or a production designer for a band? You, you would think you need to have some sort of music experience or design experience or so- something of that sort. Um, but it sounds like you kind of just got yourself into it and figured it out, right? Um, like, I, I guess, why do you think that was and how, how did you go about getting that knowledge and experience? I think that that, yeah, you're right. I mean, people would typically go through some kind of I don't know, perhaps formal is the wrong word, but some kind of a journey towards that as a goal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. For me, I've sort of always been a, a little bit of an autodidact. I sort of teach myself things, and if I see something I'm interested in, I'll, I'll figure out how to do it. And I think that that's applicable to, to any almost anything, really. If you have a desire to, to achieve something or to learn something, there's really nothing in the way of that happening except for perhaps boredom. So you better choose something you're into, right? Otherwise, you're right. going to give up in the middle of it somewhere along the line. Because um, because you're probably going to have to be working a lot harder than the person that maybe has... Yeah, perhaps, sort of for, perhaps. Quote, I mean, unquote, I, formal education. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, the other thing about that is if you take the formal approach, you may have an idea that that's what you want to do, but you may find out somewhere during that path, 
well, it's not really what I thought it was going to be. And yeah. so doing it the other way, you're kind of immersed in it um, all the time. So you, you're going to find out very quickly whether or not you have the tenacity for it. Mm -hmm. You brought up the word boredom. Mm. And you said you worked with the Red Hot Chili Peppers for 16 years. Did the journey come to an end because you no longer loved it or because something went on in your mind that you said, I want to pursue that right now? It came about for two reasons. One, that it had been a long time and I felt that I'd achieved all the things that I wanted to achieve within that realm, let's say. Um, and the other thing was, and probably the more motivating factor of it was, is that it, well, as much fun as it was and as good as, as it had been, I couldn't see that there was a pathway beyond it. And it's, you know, it also takes up a lot of your life. So you're constantly working on somebody else's project in a way, even though you may be the director of this particular facet mm -hmm. of it, it's not necessarily your thing. And I found that that became problematic on a personal level. So what did you do after that? I moved to Thailand. Oh, no, I'd done a bunch of things. So the tour, this is how tour cycles work. So, you you know, band will release an album. They'll do three to six months of publicity and then tour on the back of that publicity, maybe for 12 months, maybe right. 13 months, whatever it is. But in between that album and the following album, there's always a downtime of a year, perhaps two years, whatever it might be, right? So in those off times, I'd always go and find something new to do. Like one time I got a book publishing deal um, in ninety. Four, I think it was, uh, off the back of a tour, I'd said, all right, I'm going to tour, but I'm going to do a side project on this tour and I'm going to make a book. And I was like, I don't know how to make a book, but I was like, fuck it, I'm going to figure out how to make a book. So I did it and I got a deal with Macmillan and we released it and it ended up being really fun. So I would always find things to do in those down What was this years. book about? It was a book about being on the road <laughs> with those guys. It was photography. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's yeah. awesome. Um, so yeah, so, so that would happen. And then sometimes in between those periods of time, I would just disappear for a year and I, you know, I might spend a year in Thailand or I might spend a year in Sri Lanka or wherever it might be. But I would always find things to do when I was out on those journeys. Like I designed a house for somebody in Sri Lanka one of these years and uh, I bought a house in New Zealand and rebuilt, spent a year rebuilding, I mean physically rebuilding it. So, I mean, I always do other things. You know, we talk about it all the time in LA. I feel like a lot of folks have anxiety because of just the traffic and just the rush lifestyle that there is. It seems like you know, you had a more nomadic lifestyle, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, did you, I mean, I'm trying to, because I don't relate to this, but how, you know, what was your frame of mind like when you're just on these, you know, journeys for a year and really not really having any sort of plan? Well, it's kind of weird because I always look at it the other way around. I'm like, I just been doing that for so long. When I stopped, it's like, Jesus, how do people do this? How do they spend all their time in one place? Don't they go mad? Because mm -hmm. like, I'm like, I got to keep moving. Otherwise it, I, it's just very much who I am. And maybe it's a symptom of, of having done that for so long, or maybe it was something that was already there. I don't know. I've mm -hmm. never reconciled it, but I tend not to think about it too much these days. So um, at that point, you're you, – so I like got the point where you leave your oh, yeah, job. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So after that, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in and out of Thailand over the previous 20 years. I had friends there. I'd owned a small house on a very remote island there. Um, an opportunity came up that to be a co-investor and designer of a small eco-resort, which I thought would be a fun project and in a region that I knew well and a place that I liked. Um, but it turned out to be a nightmare. It was just one of these stories of like, sounds like a dream in hell. And that's kind of what it ended up being. So um, 
maybe I spent two years there sort of trying to figure out what was going on. It was very complicated, and it was complicated because we were suddenly immersed in a world that we really didn't have any business being in in terms of property deals in rural Thailand and the complications along with that. So it was it was an interesting experience, but it was not something I'd like to repeat. <laughs> um, and then after that, I... Um, Oh yeah, so I designed so yeah, so I um I designed this a thing called Somnus Noi, which was this advanced, technologically advanced bed, I guess. Somnus Noi? Yeah, Somnus what does that stand is, for? Somnus is a god of sleep and Noi is the German word for new, so it was about new sleep. And it was really an idea that I'd had having done the production design stuff with you where you would incorporate video, video content. It was an immersive space, basically. And so what I decided after having spent so many years in and out of hotels that most of them were not particularly experiential and I couldn't understand why they all sort of were the same so I designed a thing that incorporated video lighting music um, a whole bunch of stuff within this immersive environment and I spent a lot of time working on it and it happened to be sort of coincided with the financial crash so and at the time, was this like a company you'd built, or was it more so just a product you're working on, and you're like, whatever happens with it, we'll see. But uh, well, it was it was a little bit of both. It was um, it obviously started off as simply as a concept, and the further I went through the development of the concept, the the more complicated the reality of it became. So I I did form a company, and I tried to I was raising money in Singapore um, because it seemed to me at that time that that had a reputation for being friendly to technology I guess and and I wanted to be close to China because I figured that's the only place I was going to be able to afford to build this thing but like I said the financial crash happened so it was sort of ten, it ended up being one of those projects that just was not going to find the money that it needed yeah. what year is this around that's a good question it must have been like 2007 yeah like so like right before, crash, right, before right, yeah. right then 2007 2008 something like that and is this still one of the off times that you're while you're no at, i'd already stopped this was on this you was a new stopped. project yeah um so this project doesn't work out ultimately what would you end up doing after that um i designed another another product which was these the sort of high-end speaker systems not like a not like a speaker system that you would plug into your stereo unit but like a standalone mm -hmm thing with an amplifier built into mm -hmm. it so we designed the amplifier and all that um and they were like all wooden um really hard to make pretty complex and i did that in new zealand and i found a company that i could work with that could do all the complicated woodwork and the they had rounded corners they were like a meter long and they stood on a metal base and a friend of mine from the chili peppers days their sound engineer we discussed having a speaker that where you couldn't see any of the speakers so the, everything mm. was pointed down at surfaces and the, it reflected audio around it but you couldn't tell where the sound was coming from they were really cool um mm. we sold those and i did we did okay with that um but product design is it requires constant r d yeah. mm -hmm. and which means it requires constant money constant money and that you know you it's all good and well to have an idea You're like wow this is a great idea i'm gonna make it and then you go jesus christ this thing is gonna be a mountain yeah you know those that's tends to be what happens mm -hmm. so yeah. you 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 say we was it throughout all these projects that you're working on was it you and maybe like the same partners that you had or was it no i always say different? we because i'm always sort of bringing people in but it was I mean, mostly it's always just me. you yeah it's always me but it's always like and 
somebody else and somebody not necessarily as partners but as collaborators like right you know i worked really closely with an electronics designer for the amplifier and that speakers i mean he wasn't part of the company but we spent a lot of time together that sort of stuff so there's always somebody that's doing something right so this is about like a decade ago you know during that time you've launched several products mm. um, right now we're drinking one of your products mm. called coaqua mm -hmm. when did the idea of coaqua come along and you know how did you begin okay so that again goes back to thailand i was it was in between one of these periods where either after the resort or before the bed i don't remember um, the chronology of it but um Vida what part of thailand are you in uh, well, I lived in Bangkok, and I had a house on an island called Koh Pratong, which is really off the Burmese border. I mean, people don't know where this is. It's mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere, but very beautiful. And right now, it's like one of the trendiest places for people to travel to. I see it all the time. Yeah. People are always in Thailand, Vietnam, around those areas. Yeah, yeah. It has been for a long time, but it's got, like, ridiculously popular in the mm -hmm. last five, ten years mm -hmm, or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but anyway, so I was there, and... I'd seen that Vita Coco had launched. This must have been 2007, I guess, because I think when they launched. Um, but I knew people that were involved with that from an investment standpoint. And, I, and so I called them up and was like, how's that going? And everybody said, it's going good, da 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 um, and I And I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe there's something that could be done better because I, I, I just thought that it was, I don't know. I, thought, I, did, I didn't think there was a premium nature to it. I thought it could be a, a product that could, that sort of allowed itself to have some more legs and I thought that I could put some other legs on it. And I happened to be in the region where coconuts are prolific. So um, that's where that journey started, simply by being in the region, looking at other stuff and knowing that I wanted to do something new. Um, and that seemed to be something that was on the radar. Did you like coconut water? Yeah, because I had, I mean, I drank piles of it. I mean, like I say, I had that house on the island and it, we had, there was coconut palms in my front porch oh not front porch front garden um and in thailand it's just something you do i mean they're everywhere i definitely want to get into to co a little bit but just kind of kind of to preface all that um before we do it's it, you know kind of hearing about your story it sounds like you've just always been naturally just like curious and you just see opportunities when they kind of present themselves in a way like how, or maybe 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 not like do you seek them out like how do you go about that kind of discovery a little of both i think that Curiosity is probably the central driver, um, and beyond that, then it's then it's a situation of of whittling down or isolating where within that curiosity might make sense. From and then it has to satisfy a bunch of criteria. Not only can it be driven simply by interest, but there has to be some logical or what's the word for that you know you have to be able to realize it one way or another if it's yeah. just completely a pipe dream then but how do you how do you like analyze that do you look at it as like oh this could maybe help people out or this could be better or this could make money like what what is like is it a combination of all of those a combination like, of all those things often i'll think i'll look at things and i think that sucks let's see if it can be done better that's one thing that i often think like why is this this way why isn't it that way or why hasn't somebody improved upon that for whatever that may be you know and that's something that i feel like a lot of people might think but they might not take that dive of like actually let me try to make it better myself as opposed to like just criticizing and not doing anything yeah I, but perhaps yeah i'm not sure where that comes from but perhaps that's just a, that's just an inherent nature within certain people right i mean if you think if i think back to being a kid i mean I was always building things i was building carts or building huts or fixing this or fixing that so maybe there was just that 
that was already there or that that came about because of those things happening as a kid. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. So you started Kowakwa in Thailand? Yeah, well, I started the idea. The genesis of it was in Thailand. I didn't start it in Thailand. I, I started looking, I started researching coconut water in Thailand, I guess is what you would say. And then um, I looked across Thailand. I looked across the Philippines. I looked across Indonesia. And I ended up finding... A, the coconut water that I like the best, and B, a company that I could co-pack with in Vietnam. So that was complete, you know, like I didn't know anything about the beverage business, one thing, nothing. I knew you drank it, that was about it, <laughs> right? Um, so I thought that two things, one, that we could do a better version of what was out there uh, and create a niche that nobody else was in. Um, so there's obviously a financial component to that because you, you don't typically go off to make things that you think right. are not going to work. Well, maybe people do, but maybe those people are nihilists. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so that was that. And then you find out the complexities of actually doing what is ostensibly a simple thing. Well, apparently a simple thing, but it, nothing is ever as simple as it seems. It's not, you know, when you think about that, for when you think about Coaqua, for example, all right, it's putting coconut water in a bottle. But when you're making 80,000 bottles, it's a lot of coconuts and it's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of things you don't know about when you start doing it. So... All that stuff started to become that's and that's what I'm saying about tenacity earlier. It's like you can have the idea of something and you may pursue it, but you may find out that that idea tends to grow legs of its own beyond what you had assumed it right. was going to be. Right? Because nothing is ever like I always find this thing when people say, "Well, follow your passion." Let's say you love making muffins, for example, right? So you do. You start a muffin business. Well, at a certain point, you're not making muffins anymore, right? You're running a business, and you're trying to manage the complexities of that business. So it has very little to do with muffins. Hmm. Um, and I suspect that that is the same for everybody, right? Hmm. So I've always had this issue with follow your passion because I just think it's a nonsensical idea. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, that passion is going to turn... You better be passionate about running a business or something else or some component of that mm-hmm. business because that's ultimately what it's going to end up being. Greer, I know, I know you, don't, you, you don't believe that you can... I don't want to say you don't believe that you can't follow your passion, but you, know, you, you think that the business aspect is of utmost importance, especially if you're trying to follow your passion. Were you passionate about anything growing up or was it just not being at home? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I was, I was, I, but I don't know if I. Could, I'm not sure that I could isolate what that thing was, um, or, or, or some things perhaps. Yeah, passionate about solving problems. I think is probably the thing that I would attribute to myself. I mean, when I reflect on things that I do, not business wise or not design wise or whatever, but everything I've ever pursued has been somewhat of a solo. Nat- I rock climbed a lot, for example, which is probably the ultimate solo pursuit, mm-hmm. right? So it's a, and that has always been an analogy that I like because rock climbing really forces you to be focused on the thing in the moment, bar everything else. You, there is no opportunity to think about anything else. So, so that, so perhaps a passion is the idea of solving problems. I, that's the only thing that really I can mm-hmm. think of. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you now have this idea, and you know it's kind of, it's in the inception phases. Mm. What? How do you actually start developing the you know actual coconut water? Deciding that it's going to go into this glass bottle. What are the next steps? So, so two things. One was I was determined to put it in glass because nobody else was. Um, and in hindsight, it was a tricky decision. No, it wasn't a tricky decision to make. It was a tricky thing to execute, which I didn't anticipate for reasons that I'm not going to go into. They're not particularly interesting, but. 
Um, so the next step was now we've got to make glass bottles, right? Because there was all the generic bottles that you buy off the shelf or people buy off the shelf. I was like, I don't like them. Um, so I was like, where do you, who makes glass bottles? So I found a manufacturer in China. I flew to China. I went to the middle of nowhere. I went to a glass bottle factory. I'd never done that. Learned the process for that. And then we started to bring, import those bottles into Vietnam and bring them to the factory that we work with to put the water inside the bottles. But I mean, it sounds, like I say, it sounds simple, but it's really not that simple. Um, so let's say that's the startup phase or the production startup mm -hmm, phase, mm -hmm. right? And so you go through iterations of that, like, oh my God, the labels didn't fit the first time around. So you've run 300,000 labels, but because the bottles are now two millimeters wider than what you thought they were going to be, the labels don't fit and you've got to start again. So all those sorts of headaches, but I don't think that there's anything new in that. I think everybody goes through these mm -hmm. sorts of things, right? Um, the next thing was where we were going to sell it. That was the right. hard part, right? Um, sure, it's, you get it made, but now you've got to find people that are going to buy it, and you don't have any connections within the industry whatsoever. So my hunch was that um, the, hunt, the initial hunch was that a premium product like this would go into hotels and resorts. And so that was my first target. I was like, where are we close to? Like, Which ties there? back into something that you had said earlier regarding the bets. Yeah, yeah, but it was just like, totally coincidental. Okay. But, yeah, for whatever reason. But um, anyway, so I was like, well, where are we close to-ish that has a, you know, a proliferation of those sorts of outlets and is not too far away and speaks, some, speaks English? So Hong Kong is where we went first, and we got into the Four Seasons, the... Mandarin Oriental. I mean, I can't remember mm -hmm, the name. Mm -hmm. But anyway, but it proved the point. I was like, okay, well, they are receptive to it, and it does work in these sorts of outlets, and they are interested. So that was the first part of that journey. Um, and then from there, we we picked up a distributor in New Zealand. We picked up a distributor in um, Dubai. We picked up a distributor in South Korea. And a lot of those sorts of outlets started to appear on the radar, which 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 is good because it... it, it um, concluded what I had initially thought. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how that, but I mean, I'm saying I'm putting that into two sentences, but that probably took two years, you know. And so throughout this whole time, I'm not sure if you mentioned already, but did you have investors or were you financing no, this through no, like yourself and sales? Initially, it was all self-funded. Um, we did take on some investment uh, recently-ish, like in the last six months or something. But I've always been of the opinion that we, it needs to, it needs to, self-generate to some extent. I mean, there's always a requirement for capital it, um, just be because you need it, right? Unless you're incredibly lucky and it all just c comes flooding through the floodgates. But typically speaking, we've been bootstrapping for the most part. Um, at some point in the future, that may change. But for now, I, I see that as the path forward. So how many years has it been for Co-Aqua? Mm, Three-ish. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any long-term plans in terms of this specific brand? I do. I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to to see. It. I mean, I very much see it as a niche, premium brand. And so, within the context of coconut water and and perhaps um, variations, particularly within flavor groups of coconut water, I'd like to see that it is the premium niche brand. Let's mm -hmm, say. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any huge aspirations to be like a, 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 a within giant traditional retail stores. It doesn't appeal to me. I mean, I. It's just, I, it's just not something that I'm interested in. Perhaps it, at a point in time, if we 
successful in the niche drive and somebody else bigger is interested in acquiring it and taking it beyond what I'm interested in, then for sure. But for me, no. So as far as L.A. is concerned, where can people find Coaqua? Everything in the U.S. we're doing direct-to-consumer through the website for the time being. Um, there will be select small independent outlets. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, I mean, Erewhon is uh, yeah. probably going to take us. Um, and they're up and they're very up and I mean, they're big already, but it's very up and coming and it seems to be the trend of what the future kind of markets are going to look like. I think so. I mean, it seems to be a trend worldwide as well. Yeah. You see a lot more independent, a lot more curated, um, better quality, better products, more sustainable, all those things that seem to be prevalent, I think are mm-hmm. prevalent. Um, It'll be interesting to see how that plays out against the big giant conglomerate Retail, markets, yeah. whatever they are, yeah. you know, whether or not they'll figure out how to, mm-hmm. to meld or not meld. I don't know. I'm curious, what is your, what is your approach to branding? Because, you know, being kind of dating back to like your days with Red Hot Chili Peppers and then mm-hmm. also all these like different products that you've worked on and designed, do you see the concept of branding in, in a certain light? And like, do you have like a methodology for that, or do, does it just kind of develop on its own based on the work you put into it? Um, I, I'm not sure that I have a super strong methodology about it. I certainly have an aesthetic view about it, and I think that everything should look good and should be good. I mean, I, beyond that, I don't know that I'm particularly good at, at analyzing what my methodology is. I, I mean, I look at a lot of bad products and I go, why does that suck? I mean, and that's the thing I can never get my head around. It's like, why make it if you're going to make it bad? And people will often use the excuse of, of cost, for example. Well, even that seems to be a kind of like a little bit of bullshit, if you ask me. I mean, sure, you can make things cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, but ultimately you sacrifice quality, but you also are filling the world with a bunch of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think we could use less shit and, and, and better stuff as opposed to that. So from a branding standpoint, no, I think that the... With this, with Coaqua, for example, I think it's sort of inherent in the product itself. Like coconut water is naturally good. It's natural. All the things that people say about it are right. And so that, to harp on and wave a flag about it, I think, is a, a little bit redundant. Um, but as long as the packaging looks good and the, and the experience is good, I think that that's, that's my thing. As a founder, I think there's a lot of ups and downs in you know our entrepreneurial journey or just in our lives in general it's it's sort of a lonely you know journey especially if you know you don't have a big team to begin with or even if you do mm. you're 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 taking on the problems of not only the company but also of the people that are working for you and making sure that your you know your product your business is always doing good and you know how, how do you deal with that you smoke know. a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. stressful. I mean, that yeah. entrepreneurial journey is stressful. Anybody who says it isn't is is either lying or they're out of their mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know that mm-hmm. anybody could subscribe to that. But mm-hmm. um, how do I deal with it? Well, I try to exercise. That's one way I try to deal with it. Um, I try to not take everything personally, which. I used to. I tend to not do so much. Perhaps that's just simply a symptom of having um, overload. Um, I don't know how other people deal with it, but exercise, meditation, the usual things, cigarettes, which I pr- obviously know I shouldn't be doing, but um, we've all got our vices, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, you do take on responsibility for 
other people, whether they're colleagues, whether they're out, you know, whatever. And so, I don't know. I think you just have to try and run an ethical game as much as you can and run it with transparency and sure shit's going to go wrong sometimes and you just got to expect it and you got to roll with it there's no easy way around or no easy answer i suspect i suppose mm-hmm. as far as los angeles is, is concerned what are your you know what's your opinion on the entrepreneurial environment here and you know businesses that are coming out of here I'm not sure that I have a hell of a lot of insight into that for LA, but I mean, I have more insight into to other places simply because it's more, I mean, LA is obviously because LA is so big, right? And you don't necessarily, it's not in your face here as much as it would be in a developing city, for example. So obviously there's a pile going on in LA, but unless you're sort of immersed in that startup culture here, you I wouldn't know, you wouldn't spot it, for example. Mm. Whereas in Ho Chi Minh City, for example, at the moment, I see just a fucking gangbuster of work going on. Just things are moving at the speed of light. There's Every time I'm there, there's like a new co-working space. There's a new this. There's a new that. There's a new brewery. It's just nonstop. Mm-hmm. So it, and yeah, I mean, for LA, I, I, I can't tell. I don't know. I don't know. At this point in your life, are you, I mean, Co-Aqua, is it? Full-time, uh, and by full-time, I mean, like, is it, like, the only project you're working on? Um, and also, aside from that, like, what else are you up to? Do you have a family? Um, Coaqua's it for the time being. I mean, we're in five countries or six countries or whatever it is, so that it is kind of full-time, although some days, I, some days it seems so stupid to me. It's like, we could do another hundred different things. But, yeah. you know, you are, because you're in it, you can't, turn it off so that you know what I mean so I can't say I'm going to start up a new project and spend six months work because something's going to appear tomorrow that I got to do so it takes yeah it's full time um I don't have a family um I've been way too nomadic for that and I and I, you know but then that's by decision as well I mean mm-hmm. my brothers and sisters all got kids and that but I'm like ain't for me mm-hmm. so it's really not I just I'm too selfish for that in terms of my time I think I just don't think I could cope what do you want to do, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, perhaps, whether it's with Coaqua or something else or in your personal life that you, that keeps you going, you know, th- that kind of like. The overarching sure, thing. Sure, yeah. Well, I would, I mean, I guess that the whole thing is, like I said, is to make better things, whatever those things might be. I think that I'll always be, I, I don't know how you define what I do. I'm a designer, I'm an inventor, I don't know what it is. Creator. Creator, whatever it is. So. I think that um, whatever I do will be along the, the, you know, trying to imbibe this idea of better, however I define it, in however I define How better, do you define right? better? Well, by not being wasteful, by not adding additional crap that I don't think people need, by being ethical. I, you know, this would seem fairly obvious, I think, from a sort of hum- humanistic standpoint, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, yeah, I'm, I, by yeah, not not contributing worthless crap would be kind of my goal. If I'd like to be able to say that, if I achieve anything in life, it would be that. Paul Greer, it's been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and and we're excited to see Coaqua, uh, you know, grow even more. Yeah, and go to the website, man. That's where you get it, coaqua.co. Yeah, for those who haven't had it, it's probably the most refreshing coconut water I've had. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I'll admit I haven't drank too many coconut waters, but from the main brands, definitely cool. uh, the cool. most refreshing. So, yeah. um, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, man.